0: One of the uh, responsibilities, I guess we call them, uh, that uh, I get to participate in as uh, as a professor is graduation ceremonies. And I've been through a lot of them. And, um, you know, there, there, there's different things that make graduation ceremonies special and so forth. Um, but one of the things that can sometimes be um, I don't want to be too mean here, difficult, let's just say difficult, are, are the speakers, the people who get up to, to give the commencement address, to speak a word of encouragement to the graduating students, to, to tell them, you know, what lay ahead, to to encourage them in what lay ahead, and and, and most of the time, you know, they, they follow a pretty standard pattern in terms of, you know, this is what you've accomplished, and what you've accomplished sets the stage for where you're headed, and those sorts of things. But every once in a while, there's that speaker that gets up, and you're not really sure why they were asked to speak. A couple of years ago, we had a, a gentleman at, at ETBU um, who got up to speak, and, and um, I'll tell you right now, he's not here today. But Dr. Sanders is—he's uh, in charge of the, the, the service, and so forth—and he he says to the speakers, "I've, I've had several of them tell me, 12 minutes." You have, you have 12 minutes. That, that's what we're giving you to, to lay out what you want to say, to say what you want to say, to do what you want to do. You know, that, that's, that's your time slot, 12 minutes. Work on it. This particular speaker went 45 minutes. But not 45 minutes of what you might call meaningful exchange. He was telling us the history of trains. Now, I'm a, I'm a history buff. I love, I love history. I love, to, I love those kind of nuance. I love those sorts of stories. I love to know where things came from and, and how they developed and all those. Other. I love that sort of stuff. But during a graduation ceremony, 45 minutes on trains was just a little bit much. And, and the, the struggle of it really was we never knew what message he was trying to say. We never knew where he was going with his talk. I mean, you, you could talk about any number of things and, and then make an illustration of this is your future, this is where you're going, this is what you need. He never went there. He never got there. He just talked about trains and then sat down. Now, we've all experienced speakers like that. We've all experienced those, those events, and, and sometimes it's a commercial, sometimes it's a speaker, sometimes it's, it's something else where We're sitting there, and we're watching it, we're encountering it, and we just don't know what message is trying to be communicated. I mean, y'all ever watch the commercial, and at the end of the commercial, you're you're surprised by what it is they're actually advertising? You know, you you get to the end, you're like, that was a, a dentist commercial? Or that was an insurance commercial? What message are they trying to send? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is continuing his exchange with the church concerning concerning sexual immorality. It's something that he started back in chapter 5. It's something he'll continue on into chapter 7. As as he's been moving through the the letter here, he's been dealing with the issues within the church, and as he comes to chapter 5, 6, and 7, one of the issues is sexual immorality. People are doing some things, making some decisions, participating in some activities that are just not representative of what it means to be a believer. But in chapter 6, his focus on this particular issue is to ask the community there, and by extension to ask us, what message are we communicating as Christians in the actions we undertake, in the decisions that we make, in the words that we speak, in the things that we participate in, Are we sending a clear message of the gospel? Are we sending a clear message of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Are we sending a clear message that Jesus changes lives to the world around us? Or are we living in such a way to where the world's just confused as to who we are, what we believe, and what difference Christ can make? So let's look here in 1 Corinthians 6 today and let's consider this question. What message are we communicating? And hopefully come to some, some observations, some conclusions on, based upon what Paul says here about how we might be able to communicate things more clearly. He starts in verse 1 talking about the issue of lawsuits. He says, if any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous? and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, and you're unworthy to judge the trivial cases, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead of brothers, goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul's primary point here in terms of, of, of this particular issue is that we undermine our influence when we make our disputes public. And, and his his purpose here is, is he's, he's setting the stage for what he's going to say uh, about sexual immorality in, in the passage that followed by, by saying that Our testimony before the world matters. What we communicate to them matters in terms of their response to Christ, in terms of their understanding of who we are. We we, we, we need to think through everything that we do. We need to think through everything that we say. We need to think through everything that we pursue in terms of how it impacts how people view God, how people view Christ. Now Corinth, just like uh, uh many uh places throughout history, was a very litigious society. They sued for everything. We have multiple records Roman records and so forth uh talking about just how litigious this the city was and the people continued that after becoming believers and you had the, the these believers here in the church who are who are suing each other and Paul says. What on earth? Why would you take your disputes as believers to a pagan court? Why why would you, who have been given a standing, a position as joint heirs with Jesus, a, a position where you're going to be fellow judges with Jesus as well one day, why would you then submit to a lower court? Why would you then think that that is the way to, to fix the struggles that you have as a church. And, and he, he, he uses a couple examples here to, to, to shame them. Now, we don't know exactly what he means when he says we're going to judge angels. We don't know exactly what involved there or what exactly is uh, involved. Uh, it, it probably has something to do with uh, the rebellious angels that are mentioned in Jude and, and other places. But his point is, is clear, regardless of what exactly he's referring to, he, he's, he's saying that if, you're, if you could judge on such high things, why can't you take care of the simple things of life? If, if you're going to be given this power to, to, to deal with the big matters, eternal matters, why can't you deal with the temporal ones, the little ones? And he says... Surely there must be somebody in the congregation there at Corinth who's wise enough that you would trust their decision-making process. Surely there must be somebody there in the congregation that you can go before and, and they hear what's going on and they say this is how to fix it. But his point isn't so much the lawsuit as it is the testimony or the communication that the church is bringing to the people there at Corinth by taking the disputes public, by bringing them into the court, they are communicating a, a reality about Christianity that says that that we that we are weak, that we are unable to take care of our own issues, that we are just like them. Now. The way this would more than likely apply today is not so much in lawsuits, although a lot of people do very much uh, uh, take this passage in, in that direction. This would go, I think, much more in, in our culture, more into the the, the the social media or just gossiping, if you're not on the computer, gossiping about fellow church members to, to nonbelievers and stuff can you believe what they did? Da, 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 da. And we got blogs out there and, and we got all sorts of things out there. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't correct people and, and those sorts of things, but but so often things that should have been handled within the body of Christ are put out there in the public media. And they cast aspersions, not just on the church, but unfortunately, on Christ too often, on the God we serve. We should have a, a, a mindset that, that says, I want my influence to be all that it can be. I, I want to be able to interact. I want to be able to engage. I want to be able to, to be heard. And even if I'm not agreed with, to be at least respected because I've done things in the right way. We're in the midst, as I'm sure you're aware, of of a culture war in our nation, in our world. And, And I'm convinced that a big part of the reason that we are not as successful in that culture war as we could be is because we've undertaken methodologies, approaches, exchanges that are of the world and not of Christ. And because we've done that sort of thing because we've we've carried out our argument arguments as if the world would carry them out. People see no need or reason to listen to us. It's important that our influence is expressed not because we've manipulated the situation, but because we have something truthful to say. And people do see a difference. I've told the story many times before. It's one of my favorite stories from church history of early in the 20th century, Southern Baptists, like a lot of institutions, got into financial difficulty. They undertook a fundraising campaign to raise money to expand uh, our institutions and so forth, and buildings and, and that sort of thing, different schools and and different endeavors, and they they did the bids, you know, the the promises, the pledges from members and so forth, and, and they got the the pledges, but they didn't wait for the money to come in to act on those pledges. They just went out and borrowed money based upon these pledges and and got into some serious serious financial issues. and they sought to to reorganize and, and to re-plan uh, their 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 giving back. And, and they wanted to do so in, in a way that they didn't declare bankruptcy and get excused from it. They wanted to pay back what they had borrowed. It was the commitment that they had. And so they they, they got with the banks and tried to, to reformulate the payback schedule and all these other things. And they they went across the country. They got businessmen of, of all stripes from – from Southern Baptist Life to to say that they were going to back it. They were going to support this and they would would be responsible for the loan, the the uh, reorganization of the loan. But when they went to the bank, the bank said, we're not going to do this based upon these signatures, but if you get one man's signature, we'll give you the money. We'll we'll refinance. That man was George W. Truett, Pastor First Dallas. There was a man who was of such integrity, not a businessman himself, not a wealthy man himself, but he was of such integrity that the bankers, the secular bankers said, if we have his word, we know it will get paid back. Oh, to have that kind of respect present in the church again, to have that kind of of, of honor present that that our word is held to, but we can't get to that point if we continue to 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 take steps and to and to and to follow methodologies and approaches that are of the world instead of Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here. He continues this argument by by telling us that we we misrepresent salvation itself when we persist in living like the world. And we come to a passage here in in 1 Corinthians, that's uh, one of the most controversial uh, in the church today. And it, in many ways, it shouldn't be, but it is. And, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time here to read it first, verses 7 through 14. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now you hear this passage, and, and obviously a lot of our focus uh, today in the church and so forth is right there on verse 9, the list of verse 9. It's it's one that a lot of discussions take part in and so forth, and we're going to deal with that briefly here today, but, but before I get to that, I want to highlight the, the overall argument that Paul has here. And the overall argument that Paul has here is that our priority has to be on the gospel. Our priority has to be centered on the transformative work that Jesus does in our lives, that Jesus does in our hearts and in our minds. And he's making the point here that persistent practice of sin betrays a heart that doesn't belong to God. He's not saying that those who sin after salvation are not Christians. He's not not challenging us or or describing us or or explaining to us this idea that that you have to be perfect after salvation. That's not what he's arguing. But notice in his list here in verse 9 that it is a list of titles. Sexual immoral people, idolaters, adulterers. Males having uh, sex with males, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers. Why does he use titles here? Why, Why does he do that? Because what he's trying to say here is that these are people who are so persistent, so committed to their sin that that's their identity. That's what he's saying. He's not saying people who slip into sexual errors or sins or, or people who might cheat on an occasion or, or who have some problems cheat in terms of business deals and so forth or, or who have some problems. He's not saying that we're sinless. He's saying that if you are of the mindset, if you are of the, the commitment, if you are of the focus, that you are known as that sin, there's a problem in your relationship with there's a problem in your uh, expression that you are a believer. And we'll talk about why that is in just a second. But before we, we get to that, I, I need to spend just a moment, and, and normally I, I wouldn't with this particular message spend any time much time on this at all, but I need to spend just a moment because there's a lot of conversation about that phrase, the sentence here, men who sleep with men in our culture today, and a lot of it's coming from the church or people who are in the church leadership and so forth who who are trying to distance Paul's words here from homosexuality, trying to distinguish it. And um, you'll, you'll hear arguments such as well, Paul's talking about a specific act within a temple ritual or Paul's talking about a specific event uh, within um, the culture there at Corinth that's not equivalent or to be equated with what we would describe as same-sex activity today. And and, and you, what you need to understand is that behind that phrase that's translated here, uh, in, in my translation, males who have sex with males, there's actually two terms there. There's two phrases there, and, and people seek to, to take those phrases and, and to, to define them in such a way that it removes them from the discussion of homosexuality. And I just want to give you a, a good, hopefully good, a clear explanation of exactly what Paul is saying there in the Greek. What, what it is that's going on. The first word that's behind that is the word malakois. M-A-L-O-K-O-I-S, um, Malakois. It's a word that, that generally means soft in the Greek. That's what the word means. It means soft. In, in the King James Version, they, they rendered it um, effeminate. Okay. Now, a lot of people have looked at this word, and, they, and they've gone back and they've looked at how the word has been used in, in Greek Thought and, and, and Greek expressions and so forth, and, and they've noticed that in, in many cases it's, it's used to refer to children. And because it's used to refu- re- refer to children in the Greek uh, text so often from this time and so forth, they, they then extrapolate from that that Paul's talking about, again, the specific act within a, a ritual cult there in Corinth that was, that was evil that anybody would look at. But the problem with what they're doing there is they're taking a later meaning of a text, of a word, and they're trying to impose it back on the earlier usage, Paul's usage here. They're they're taking how others came to use this word later to say that's how Paul has to be using it here. Okay, It'd be similar to... um, you know, some of our words today, if you look at how they were formed, how they, how were, they, how they were made, what they mean today is very different than what they meant back in, in ancient days, okay? I've used the illustration before of the word nice, okay? Nice means good or simple or something, whatever, today. You know, that, that's pleasant. But if you go back to the original usage, okay, it means idiotic, Okay? You can't what? You can't take the, the original usage and bring it forward today, so that when somebody says, "Oh, that's nice," that they're that they're meaning it's idiotic. And you can't take the pleasant the word pleasant today and move it back there. It, it it confuses the language. It confuses the expression. It 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 the meaning has changed. And because the meaning has changed, you can't say how it's used today is how it was used back then, and vice versa. Okay. So the same thing's true here. And and how Paul intends to use the word here, um, and I don't want to get graphic or anything like that, but how Paul means to use the word here is not in reference to children who are victims, because Paul here is identifying people who are participating in sin that they themselves are identified that way. He would not identify children who are victims of sexual uh, deviancy as somehow the sinners are the ones to blame in the situation. There's no way that is his use here in this word. He would not look at those children and say, yeah, you guys are the ones who are responsible for that. That's not what he's saying. And so when you look, what does the word mean? The the word means the passive partner in male sexual activity. That's what the word means. In sexual activity, you have the giver, you have the taker. Okay? In this particular usage here, malakois means the taker, the one who is willingly participating in the sexual activity as a recipient. Okay. Which brings us to the other word. The second word is arsenic, arsenicotes. I'm going to spell that one for you. But it's arsenicotes. And again, about um, this, this word has many different meanings throughout the text and so forth. Throughout history, we have it used many places. But as far as we can tell, this is actually the first time it's ever actually used. Which tells us Paul is doing something that Paul does quite often throughout his text. He's making up a word. Paul was known for this. He liked when there was not a word that fit, when there was not a word that expressed exactly what he wanted to say in Greek, he would just make the word up by putting words together. And, and if you look at this word and you go back to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, in Leviticus 20, 13, it says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman. And in the Greek translation of that from the Septuagint, you have, where it says a man lies with a man, you have arsenos and koyentei. So what Paul is doing here is he's taking those two separate words in the Leviticus, uh, in the Greek translation of Leviticus, and he's cramming them together to make one word to create this title, a man who sleeps with a man, someone who participates in homosexual activity, someone who is the active partner in the relationship between men. So the two words that Paul uses here are the active and the passive partners in male sexual relations. So that's why your modern translations will say, such as mine, males who have sex with males and so forth, they're rendering Paul's meaning there. So this idea that some have taken that that we can grammatically excuse this or remove these words, it really doesn't fit when you look at the actual evidence of the words themselves. A second argument that people will say is what you might call the psychological argument. And you'll often hear this, it's just thrown out as if it if, as if it stands by itself and proves the point that the idea of homosexuality or the concept of homosexuality as we practice it today or understand it today did not come into being until the 19th or early 20th century. If you read any articles on this, uh, on this whole argument, this whole debate? You'll you'll see that argument's just thrown out there, and, and what they're basically saying is this: that when Paul and others of his day looked at relations between men or women with the same gender, that what they were doing is they were looking at heterosexuals and looking at that through the lens of how heterosexualism was being corrupted. That if Paul had only understood that there was this inner drive within people for same-sex relations, if he'd only understood that that was the way they were made or they were created and not a distortion of heterosexuality, then he would not have been against it. That's their basic argument. Okay? That because the concept of this attraction, same-sex attraction, really didn't develop until the 19th century, then any comments about it before then were really born out of ignorance more than out of fact. But the problem there is that Paul is not digging into the nature of heterosexuality or homosexuality. He's dealing with the activity. He's dealing with an activity that goes against God's plan it goes against God's design. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, last month was Pride Month, as I'm sure you're aware. And there was a, a certain gentleman, I don't even know his name, I should have looked it up to be honest, um, a congressman who got up and said, "Let me let me quote for you all the words that Jesus had to say about homosexuality. And he stood there for, I don't know, 60 seconds in silence. And he said, that's it. And he sat down. And the implication of his speech, the implication of his comment, was that since Jesus did not have any specific words about homosexuality, we are wrong as Christians, followers of Jesus, to then speak against it ourselves. There, there, there's two problems with that, however. The first is what I call red-letter disease. Red-letter disease is the perception, the idea that the red letters in the Bible are somehow more Jesus than the non-red letters. If all Scripture is inspired by God, then whether the letters are red or whether the letters are black, they are the words of Christ. So you have those words. But the... The second issue is that Jesus did speak about the issue of the male-female relationship in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, he's talking to the Pharisees about marriage. And he says there in that setting that these Pharisees were trying to redefine marriage. Marriage, according to their purposes and their definition of what marriage was. So that divorce worked a certain way and life worked a certain way and we could set our own rules for how it operates and how it functions and when it's wrong and when it's right and all those other things. And Jesus, in speaking to them, he says, you do not have the right to redefine marriage because marriage was instituted by God at creation. And Jesus specifically says there in Matthew 19, male and female become one flesh. That is the definition of marriage. So Jesus did have some things to say about the issue directly, not just in terms of his inspiration of Paul and others. Now in pointing all that out I want to say this number one there's a whole list of sins here in verse 9 and, and we do a disservice if we focus in just on one of them. We do a disservice to what Paul is saying here. We do a disservice to his overall message here. We lose the overall picture. And, and as I said, I would not have taken the time to do this had there not been such a, a forthright argument going in the other direction that's so prevalent in our culture. Because I want us to understand that the reality is that if we look at this list, more often than not, we're going to find ourselves in it someplace. Each one of us is going to find ourselves in it. Whether it's the theft or verbally abusive, which would include gossip, which would include unkind words, we're going to find ourselves in this. If we look. And that's important because, again, we, we need to understand that, you know, everyone is against sin. We're just against other people's sin more than our own. Okay. And we need to be careful about that. There's a, a, an important truth, and I heard this first from a man. His name is uh, Timothy Wilkins. You can look him up. He is, he says he is a homosexual. But he refuses to act on that because he believes it is against Christ's word. Okay. He has those attractions, but he won't act on them. He's what's called a side B homosexual. That's the terminology. Okay, and, and, and what he says is, he says, I have those attractions. I will always have those attractions but I am not driven by my attractions. I'm driven by the Holy Spirit. And so Tim, he is actually he's married to a woman. They have children. He's, he's ministering. He's serving. He's He he's leads a ministry in this way. But he, he made a comment, and, and this is so important for us to, to remember, and, and it's really one that's really stuck with me, and it's simply this you don't get to choose the sin that you're tempted by. You don't get to choose the sin that you're tempted by. So often we, we look at these people who deal with same-sex attractions and, we, and we, we accuse them of debauchery and all that, but we don't realize that that's the sin they're tempted by. And, and I'm not trying to excuse them or or excuse any sin for that matter. I'm simply trying to to help us to see that part of the message we proclaim as Christians is the message of love. It's the message of service. It's the message of of trying to understand and help and walk alongside somebody instead of the message of the pointing finger instead of the the message of of dismissal. We need to find that balance between being so adamant about our view of homosexual behavior that we forget to listen, forget to love, forget to save, or to serve, and, and the other side where we're so afraid of hurting someone's feeling that we forget that it's a sin. There's a balance between those two. There's a balance between uh, those perspectives and, and, and those ideas. Okay. Paul here says, in verse 11, But such were some of you. And we read those words, and we say, well, that means Jesus can rescue someone from the sin of homosexuality. And I believe the salvation conversion is real. Salvation conversion can change the very nature of who we are. But let me simply ask you this. When you became a believer, did your love for, like for, your propensity toward gossiping change? Men, did your lust toward women diminish the moment you became a believer? We all have those sins that we struggle with. If I went around the room, there'd probably be a variety of different sins here—things that we would like Jesus to just remove. Jesus, just—I don't want to deal with that anymore. I don't want to struggle with that anymore. Get that out of my life. We understand that salvation is what—it's a journey, it's a growing, it's a, it's a maturing, it's a, it's a, hopefully it's a diminishing of sin, but it's. It's what it, it's we still struggle with the old person. Was well, does Paul say elsewhere? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I, I don't end up doing. And I simply point out to, to again to help you to show compassion to those people who are struggling with same-sex attractions. And don't say, well, if you're a really believer, you wouldn't have those anymore. Why would you take that approach with that sin and not the others? Okay. Tim Wilkins has, has, has one piece of advice. Well, he, he has a whole five-step process that I'm not going to go into, but there's one I just want to throw out there. When it comes to the sin and dealing with it, confronting it or dealing with people who come to you and say, come out to you, I'm gay or whatever. He says too often when it comes to this sin, We show our anger publicly and our grief privately. He says, let me encourage you to reverse those two. To express grief publicly. To come alongside that person, to love on them, to to hurt with them, to, to be with them, and show your anger privately. Take that to the Lord. He says, and that way we can begin to, to listen. We can begin to help. But notice how Paul describes salvation. here. And this is, again, this is important to us as, as we seek to live our lives, whatever the sin is that we struggle with. He describes salvation as something God did for you. He says, what? You were washed, which is the blood of Christ cleansing us. He says, you were sanctified, which means you were changed, you were set apart. And then he says, you were justified, which means what? You were restored to relationship with God. That's salvation. Being cleansed, being changed, being restored. And if that is salvation, then what? Salvation is not something we have done, it's something God has done and we rely on the Spirit to help us with whatever sin it is we're struggling with. We walk in the power of the Spirit. And we live a life that communicates the message of that journey. Not being sanctimonious and self-righteous, but also not being of the mindset that says, well, I can just do whatever I want because I'm a believer. And I want to draw your attention real quickly i run a little long here, I apologize. Real quickly to, to verse 12. Because you, there, there's something very important here you need to understand. In verse 12 and verse 13, Paul is quoting the Corinthians. He is not advocating their position. And if you look, you'll see in your translations, most of your translations, they have the quotation marks there. When he says everything is permissible for me. That's not Paul's words. That's the church of Corinth's words. That's the message they've sent. That's one of their slogans. Everything's permissible for me. I can do whatever. And Paul corrects it with what? But not everything's beneficial. Okay. Then he, then they go on to say everything is permissible for me and he corrects it again with I will not be mastered by anything. Then in verse 13, food is for the stomach the stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. Again, that is a quotation of the Corinthians. That is not Paul's take. Okay? Now, there's some disagreement as to where exactly the quotation marks go with that one. Many of them, uh, many translations put the quotation marks after for food. But I I think the quotation marks should go after the them. Okay? When he says, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them, quotation marks. That's their quotation. That's what they're saying, which is what they're they're saying is this. Okay. Our bodies are going to be done away with. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to with it. That's what the Corinthians are saying. Okay. Remember, in the Greek mindset, the spirit and the body are two separate things. They don't really interact. They don't really connect each other. And so influenced by that, the Greeks are saying, you know what? Food is for the stomach. Stomach's for the food. God's going to do with both of them, so I can do whatever I want. I can eat whatever I want. I can be wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. But Paul here says what? I want you to know that the body is not for sexual immorality. You can't do whatever you want to with it. It's important you pay attention to that because there's been a lot of misunderstanding over the years at the church of people thinking Paul is arguing those points. He's actually arguing against them. Okay, He's quoting them to argue against them. And he's simply saying this, when you participate in these activities, sexual immorality and so forth, then you are communicating that Christ really hasn't changed you. Be careful of the message you express. He goes on to say in verses 15 through 20 that we diminish Christ when we use what is His for purposes contrary to His wishes. And I won't read the passage, but simply, you you can look it up, you can read it yourself a little later. Simply what he says here is don't take... If you if you can't take Christ with you into an activity, don't go there. That's what he's saying. He talks he's talking about relations with prostitutes here in this particular instance, probably temple prostitutes given the nature of Corinth. Some of the members were still going to this. He says, Would Jesus be there? If you can't take Jesus with you, then don't be a part of it. And he's arguing that we need to protect the most intimate part of, of who we are. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. The word there is porneia. So where do we get pornography from? And it has to do with all sorts of of activities, thoughts, events that misrepresent the purpose of sex, the purpose of of how we were created, who we were created to be. Get away from those things. Why? He gives us a, a very clear reason at the end. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Your body is your whole self, your thought life, your actions, your attitudes. We need to be driven by who God made us to be. We need to be driven by the glory of God. So why, what message are we sending as believers? As Christians, what is the message we want to communicate? If I had to boil it down to, to one thing in this chapter, it would simply be this Jesus changes lives for his glory and for the glory of the Father. Therefore, we ought to be interacting with people from a mindset that says I'm not my own. I belong to Him. He loves you just as he loved me. And he can make a difference in your life. To pull it down even more, we live to know Christ and to make Christ known. That's our purpose. That should be our message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, as we deal with your word and how it impacts, how it interacts with the world around us, how it challenges some of our own desires and commitments, God, I pray that we would always be submissive to your word first. Lord, help us to, to be a people who are mindful of the fact that we're saved by grace. Help us to be a people who walk in a way that that communicates your goodness and your mercy and your love. A people who communicate the transformative work that you can, only you can accomplish. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts. I pray, first of all, if there's anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with you, that you would draw them. But I pray especially for my fellow believers and myself that you'd help us to, to live lives committed to knowing you and making you known. Please use this time for your purposes in Christ's name.